0: Google builds cloud services for developers, such as PubSub, Cloud Storage, BigQuery, and Cloud Datastore. On Software Engineering Daily, we've done lots of shows about how these types of services are built, and in this episode, we're zooming in on the interaction between the developer who is using a cloud service and the design and engineering of the client APIs written to access those services in a easy, usable fashion. To build a useful cloud service, Google has to make a common way of interacting with that service from any programming language on any device. John Skeet is a longtime engineer at Google, and he joins the show today to explain how Google uses generated code to make the creation of those APIs more streamlined. We talk about GRPC, protocol buffers, C sharp, and lots of other topics. I feel like this episode is really important to anybody who is building a cloud service that they expect to be used by developers, which I'm sure is a growing population of people. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Send me an email, send me a tweet, whatever you want to do to contact me. There's plenty of information on softwareengineeringdaily.com. With that, let's get to this episode. John Skeet is a senior software engineer at Google. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about cloud services and let's start by talking in the abstract. What are the requirements for a modern cloud service provider for the different cloud services that they vend?
1: So different cloud service providers are going to have different uh, sort of table stakes. So. Everyone provides some sort of blob storage. Everyone's going to provide some kind of database access, um, some kind of NoSQL access, and various different providers will give their own sort of added value. Uh, I work for Google. Obviously we have a bunch of cloud services. Uh, We've just been launching machine learning based cloud services. We've got TensorFlow. We've got all kinds of things, Um, but really it starts off with the basic things that people need to get their jobs done. And as well as, of course, services uh, for storage and the like, we also need to be able to host your applications themselves. Of course, some applications won't need to run in the cloud, but still rely on cloud services. But I think it's fair to say an awful lot of platforms, you really are expecting to host your own code in the cloud, as well as just treating it like a, a big hard disk as well.
0: So Google Cloud is the Google Cloud service provider. What are some of the infrastructure and platform-as-a-service products offered by Google Cloud? I know you mentioned there's some blob storage, there's uh, machine learning in terms of TensorFlow. I guess what are the most important ones? What are the core ones that most cloud applications are using? Do you know, I in
1: some ways, I'm the wrong person to ask about this. Uh, you really want someone kind of on the on the product side for cloud specifically. Uh, I, I've seen there's a lot of uh, use of data store and BigQuery. BigQuery in particular is great for analyzing huge data sets uh, using SQL, well, it used to be, that I'd have to say something very like SQL and now they've launched standard SQL, which is fantastic. And I was looking at a, a Twitter post just uh, just today where someone was analyzing tabs versus spaces. We have a public data set of 400,000 uh, projects rather on GitHub and all the files in those projects. And you just whiz through them like that. And it's just, it's crazy how fast this kind of thing can go. And of course, these are based on things that we've been using internally in Google You know, often in a very different kind of way, there are bits and pieces. It's easy as a Google engineer to say, ah, BigQuery, that looks just like internal product name here. And of course, there are differences when you externalise things. You want to make them more general. Uh, Google's needs aren't always the needs of other companies. In fact, they almost certainly aren't the exact precise needs. And often we've geared our internal products to precisely our requirements. And as soon as you expand that, uh, you have to generalise the product as well. But yeah, so I, I see a lot of uses of uh, things like Datastore and BigQuery, and of course, uh, Google Cloud Storage, the sort of blob storage that I mentioned earlier on. And of course, we have Cloud SQL, Google Cloud SQL, which is hosted MySQL, um, which just makes it incredibly simple to get up and running with a database
0: Just like that, really. So we've talked through the basic requirements for what a cloud service is and what a cloud service might do, some different functions. What is a client library for a cloud service? So
1: most cloud services have some sort of relatively native way, some preferred way of talking to them. And obviously it's over a network connection, sort of goes without saying. But most of them will accept some sort of JSON representation of a request, and you get back a response. So the whole RESTful thing is extremely popular. I can't say I'm a REST expert, and you know, I I'm lukewarm on REST. Let's say it feels like a good set of ideas to not be too dogmatic about. But many cloud services will expose their uh, their resources in some kind of RESTful way. But then occasionally you need things that can't easily be expressed in purely RESTful, resource-oriented uh, ways of doing things. So you need to have what we call custom methods, which effectively feel a lot more like uh, RPCs, remote procedure calls. And at that point, things start to fall a little bit apart in terms of the uniformity. So while while you're in the nice world of GETs and uh, list operations in REST, uh, everyone can be pretty much just your... your ordinary JSON request over HTTP. And then when it comes to more custom things, everyone has a way that works, but they tend to be slightly different. And all of this is basically HTTP requests. And when you're working from JavaScript, that may be absolutely straightforward. The most natural thing in the world in JavaScript is to make a request with a JSON payload and get back a JSON response and then use that. Coming from my world of C-sharp and to some extent Java, that's less the case, you know, JSON is effectively untyped, you know, the, there there's some type information in there, but we're used to being able to get things in a compile time safe way. So you end up having to have libraries which know the expected JSON response format and the request format and can map between classes that either you define as an application developer or that the class library developer has, has created and you create a request, you send it, and the fact that it happens to be serialized over JSON is kind of irrelevant to you. So that that tends to be the way, as far as I've seen it, you know, as I say, I'm far from an expert in cloud services in general. I have my sort of niche little area, um, but that's the way I've typically seen cloud services being exposed. It would be a fairly odd cloud service that didn't uh, expose itself in some form of HTTP 1.1 and JSON uh, approach.
0: Got it. So so for a developer who would want to access a cloud service, what could you contrast what the experience is like without a client library versus what the experience is like with a client library? Sure. So
1: as I say, for JavaScript, client libraries may do some nice things for you, but they don't feel completely necessary and just to say, I'm not a JavaScript developer. I've seen JavaScript, I've run away screaming. Um, I'm sure people love it, but it feels reasonably natural. It's a dynamic language. You know, you can create stuff and get it fine. For C-sharp, um, if you want to go just raw native, then you build an HTTP web request or maybe you use HTTP client or whatever, and you would build the JSON which you could do with json.net or some other json serializer and you have to make sure that the request looks absolutely right and then you'll get the response back and then you have to pick the p- response part according to the documentation and according to your testing and you know maybe you have a typo and things go horribly wrong or worse things seem to work uh, and you have an impression that you understand how this cloud service works and then later on you get a response back that doesn't quite meet that and suddenly things fall apart so it's it's very raw hit and miss it's a bit like well very much like writing writing your own kind of serialization saying well i want to save my results to a database so i shall find the native database uh, stream format and serialize all my data into that very carefully and get the response back it's that's not the way that we work productively, basically.
0: Right. So the client library factors out a lot of the typical work, the canonical work, that a developer would otherwise have to do in order to interface with some external service, in this case, cloud services. So you know, much of your work has been on the Google Cloud.net offerings, which are in C Sharp, Um so I guess let's talk about like how does the development um, of a client library take place? I mean, what are, what are the phases of the development process for writing a client library?
1: So for my personal position, I have two kinds of client library that, that I'm writing over. So Google used to expose and still does expose, but it's sort of the relatively old way of doing things, uh, expose a JSON-based API. And we have code generation uh, in place; has been for years. You know, we're we're still uh, tweaking it where there are problems and things. We're looking after it, but it's it's basically there, um, which does all the JSON serialization and deserialization. So you don't need to worry about making typos in your code, but it is still fairly raw. So that's the sort of what I'll call for for the sake of this interview a restful API. And then we have the new hotness, which is called gRPC, which is an RPC protocol that isn't strictly tied to protocol buffers or HTTP2, but in the typical implementation and all the implementations I've used, it is basically an RPC mechanism over HTTP2 and where the messages you pass back and forth are protocol buffers. So in each case, I take what's is code generated there. And in the case of a gRPC-based API, there are actually two layers of code gen that we've got. One is the, here are the raw RPCs, and then we add a layer over the top to make it feel more resource-oriented. resource, resource oriented. Now, I can feel a bit of confusion coming on already because this is the resource-oriented layer over the gRPC versus the RESTful API, which is the old stuff. And it's isn't this the same thing? Well, we do expose all the new hotness over REST and JSON as well. And we know that despite the fact that these services are underlying RPC APIs, we're designing them to feel resource oriented so that you can still get the same benefits of REST, it just happens not to be JSON and HTTP 1.1, which you know there's nothing in REST that says that's what you have to be using. So this is just another way of exposing things and we get to look at all our experience of what's worked well and what hasn't worked well in previous code generation and try to apply patterns so that we know when you're listing resources, a very common pattern in cloud services is you want to list all the, I'll give an example from PubSub. So the Google PubSub API, you have subscribers and you have topics and um, the subscribers subscribe to topics. So, You might want to list all the topics within a project. Now, there may be 10,000 projects, topics within that project, and you don't want all of those to come back in one RPC. So we have a, a pattern, a paging pattern, where we say, okay, on each request, you can say a page token of sort of where you left off. And then when you get the response back, it will say, well, here's all the, you know, one page worth of results you know, 25 topics or whatever. And here's the next page token to provide to the next call. And that all works fine, but it's manual repetitive work to make all those list calls to get the first 25, then the next 25, then the next 25, or however many you get per page. Typically that's another request parameter. So we have code gen that understands that pattern. There's some semantic understanding over the RPCs to say, well, I'm just trying to list topics And this is where I, as a C-sharp person come in, designing this code gen to say, well, the normal way of doing that would be to expose an I enumerable or maybe I queryable um, so that you can just iterate over them. And we can do background RPCs, as I say, in the background. And in fact, we don't expose just I enumerable of T because you may want to stop partway through and then pick up later. So you've got to have some way of accessing the page token while not being too, there's this uh, tension between being very aware of the underlying RPCs and not wanting to care about them. So you don't want them in your face, but you want them to be available when you need them. So part of my job is for the code gen side of things, making that new semantic layer of code gen over the raw RPCs, making that as smooth as possible But even then, sometimes that isn't quite enough. And this is where the handwritten code comes in. And this happens over both the uh, gRPC APIs and the RESTful old style, let's call them APIs. So the, the libraries I'm working on at the moment, I've got Google Cloud Storage and Google BigQuery. Those are on top of the old RESTful APIs. And so I'm looking at those and thinking, well, how can I make them much easier to use, much feel much more idiomatic, make calls that might have required setting up you know, three or four different objects just to do something that should be a one-liner. How can I make that a one-liner? And it's a very thin wrapper, thin layer over the top, um, but it, it gets the job done so that you can get the common operations on the service executing much more simply.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned this term... A number of times called code generation. So that could mean a number of things. What does code generation mean in this context? Right.
1: So we take the service definition in some form or other. So in the RESTful APIs, we have what's called a discovery document, uh, which you can download from the discovery service. So we have a cloud service, which tells you about all the other cloud services, And that gives you the JSON that describes the service. And then we turn that into a bunch of C-sharp classes, basically, it's as simple as that. And they have a dependency on some support libraries, which know how to make the calls and do authentication. So the, the generated code is primarily about, well, what are the operations that I can do? What are the resources? What are the collections of resources? and that's the uh, the restful apis for the grpc based apis there are actually three whole layers of code gen it gets really quite complicated and this is another case of you know you want developers to be aware of this in the background without it being so in their face that they're always having to wonder what layer they're talking about so for grpc based apis i mentioned before they're based on protocol buffers so protocol buffers is Well, It's it's been at Google for longer than I have. I've been there eight years and we were on Proto 2, now we're on Proto 3. Um, and it's been open source for quite a lot of that time. And it's basically just serialization. You define some messages and then uh, we auto-generate classes in Java, Ruby, Python, Go, C++, C Sharp, um, no doubt others. And all these classes know how to do is... Uh, Serialize themselves to bytes and parse from bytes into you know, objects. So it's straightforward serialization. But unlike some other serialization forms, where they try to serialize your existing classes, we say no. We're we're in control of these classes. We will generate them. They know how to serialize themselves, which is both limiting and uh, it leads to fewer surprises. Let's say. Now in C-Sharp, we generate them as partial classes. Uh, so you can add your own members. If you've got, say you've got a person class, uh, a person message, and it has a first name property and a last name property, you could create your own name property that glues the two together or whatever whatever you want. Um, and of course, C-Sharp with extension methods means that even if, Uh, you're accepting protocol buffer messages that someone else has defined in a different assembly, Uh, you can still add helper things yourself. So there's a degree of flexibility there. But fundamentally, we've taken some .proto message definition files and turned them into code. So that's sort of the bottom layer. The next layer up is gRPC. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go for it. Uh, the, The next layer up would be gRPC. So the gRPC services, I said that the protobuf messages were literally just messages. Here's a request message. It contains you know, the ID of some project or whatever. And here's your topic resource that contains its name and various things. So the gRPC layer takes services which are also defined within .proto files, um, which is almost almost a historical accident. You can almost think of them as separate. Um, but they're services that are defined in a proto we kind of way and four protos and again we generate c sharp code and in the case of c sharp um, and my projects we happen to check these co- these uh, classes into github so uh, i like the idea that someone can check out a github repo and just build it straight away without having to also install the proto c the, the protobuf compiler that generates all the things so if you want to have a look at the the output of either the protobuf compiler or the grpc generator which acts as a plugin to the proto compiler um, you can just have a look at my github project which i'm sure you'll refer to on the uh, on the webpage and um, just have a look at the generated code so we've now got messages and we've got grpc that would let you if you did just that that would let you make rpc calls and do everything you need to do you know there, there is nothing that uh, we do over the top that you couldn't do yourself. In theory, of course, everything can be done. You know, you can create your own TCP client and just <laughs> spit the bytes out and do exactly the right thing. You definitely don't want to do that. You know, we've spent a lot of time making this perform well and you know making it obey all the protobuf uh, idioms and and all the all the conventions. So you want to use those, but you could just use gRPC generated code. Um, mm-hmm. Authenticate to get some credentials, and then you're fine. But it would feel like an RPC. It would feel like for, I'm making requests and getting responses back. But that's the so that's from, two layers of coaching. Yeah.
0: So from the standpoint of the service creator, like if I'm the the person, or if I'm one of the engineers working on Google Cloud Pub/Sub, the service itself, as opposed to the client libraries which you work on, do I just have to create a spec for what types of protobuf requests or what types of gRPC requests that I am going to respond to. And then it becomes the responsibility of the, the writers of the client libraries to conform to that protobuf or gRPC Absolutely. spec. Yes.
1: So you define your server side. I, we've been here before. This is soap and whistle. It really is. You know, it's just <laughs> hopefully a lot better. Um, you know, the, there are no new ideas, and it's not like soap and Whistle were the first time that had come back. Um, but yeah, so you define your service, and when we make a call to PubSub, I don't know what PubSub is implemented in. It could be implemented in C++. It could be implemented in Go. It could be implemented in Java. Um, you know, I don't need to care because the protocol is this service definition. And so... The the API producers don't need to know what the client libraries would look like, but a good API producer will actually talk to the client teams. And there can often be things where, although an RPC lets you do everything you want to, it doesn't necessarily express itself in the very simplest way of doing things. So as an example, I'm currently working on the Cloud Vision API. And one of the nice things about working on open source things is I'm not revealing any company secrets by saying I'm working on Cloud Vision because, well, I, I haven't created the pull request yet, but it may well be tomorrow that anyone and everyone can see what I'm working on. So yeah, there, there's nothing secret here. And um, you can have a look at the Cloud Vision API. And from an RPC perspective, it consists of a single call, which is batch annotate images or I think it's that way around. It's it's definitely got batch, image, and annotation in there. Um, but within that, that's a batch of requests. And for each request, you, you supply an image. And you can say, I want to detect faces. I want to detect landmarks. I want to do all, all kinds of things. And so it's really flexible. And it means it's just one RPC, which the, the flexibility involved in having a small number of RPCs is great. But it isn't a brilliant client experience whereas what I've added in literally when I was writing it earlier it's a page or two of code to sort of live by the side of the code gen it's augmenting the code gen for the client code that we're generating you know we end up generating two calls actually one synchronous batch annotate images and one asynchronous batch annotate images async um And all I've added is some helper methods to sort of wrap that into, well, do you know what? Quite often you just want to annotate a single image. So, you know, let's make it easy to send one request in and get, you know, unwrap the one response out of the repeated response that we get back. And hey, I know you can detect landmarks and faces. And in fact, it was great. This morning I did my very first test using this particular API. Uh, My whole family recently uh, came to Australia with me where I was speaking at NDC Sydney, which was a fantastic time, by the way. Um, And so I picked a random photo that I'd taken, downloaded it, Uh, ran it through the API and said, please detect faces and landmarks. And it said, yep, there are four faces here and show me where they are. And there's the Sydney Opera House in the background. It's like, yes, this API works. Wow. Wow. Incredible. It's a really cool feeling. So uh, one of the joys of doing what I do is I get to play with all these APIs that my enormously talented colleagues (laughs) are busily producing in the background. And when we talked about requirements early on, I talked about which products you had to support, which kind of services. What I didn't go into was availability and response time and uh, you know, privacy, security, all kinds of flexibility things, and the the vast requirements.
0: Because luckily, you don't have
1: to write absolutely. Those side I sort of need to understand <laughs> when it comes to authentication. I need to get into that a little bit, but yeah, there there are big requirements to doing anything properly um, at scale. And it's the kind of thing you know, uh, so, that a startup so I wanna doesn't oh. necessarily get to see until they're kind of a few weeks in, and suddenly they've got a hundred thousand users.
0: It's like, ah, <laughs> right. So to zoom out a, a little bit and talking in more generalities, you know, you're talking about here, here about gRPC, and you mentioned that gRPC is somewhat analogous or similar to uh soap or these you know these past protocols maybe you could explain what is newer about grpc we did one show where we talked about grpc uh, a while ago but why don't you explain i guess just give us a top level explanation for what grpc is why it is useful in this domain and i guess what's new about it
1: so i guess it's fast reliable rpcs it's kind of boring to say it that way but It kind of is. Um, So it's been designed from the ground up to be quite similar to, but a nice open-sourced and generalized and HTTP2-friendly version of our own internal RPC mechanisms, um, which I won't say too much about for obvious reasons, as well as not knowing very much about them. But um, so big things uh, like you don't need to worry about making multiple requests, um, whether you'll have needs several connections or whatever, because connections in gRPC are just multiplexed. They just are. So uh, do I need to make a batch request or can I make five requests on the trot? Is that going to require five connections or worse? Do I need to wait for the first request to finish before the second one goes? No, they're all just multiplexed. It'll use the network fine. do I need to worry about if the socket becomes disconnected? Nah, it'll just repair the channel, it'll be fine. Do I need to worry about how it's load balanced? Nah, it'll be fine. Um, it just tries to take all the difficult parts of making a good, reliable, uh, network friendly, bandwidth friendly RPC mechanism, take all those difficult bits out, but leave you fine tuning. So you can fine tune this thing massively. Uh, I've never gone into the depths of it, but I can imagine if you're a mobile app developer in particular, you kind of care about every packet that goes over the network, potentially. At least if you care about your users, you do. Um, you, you really don't want to be wasting data. So, gRPC, as I say, uses Protobuf. Um, I think it's compressed by default. I, I honestly can't say for sure. Um, but Protobuf is already a pretty efficient, space-efficient um, and... CPU efficient uh, serialization format. So it gets a lot of that out of the way and you know in some ways the idea of doing an RPC is very old but back when RPCs were originally considered I I don't mean any disrespect to the uh, the authors of you know profound papers on these things but my guess is that they weren't thinking about cloud computing and uh, mobile computing. These are the two big, big drivers are uh, you've got thousands, tens of thousands of computers in, sitting in data centers with insanely fast network connections to each other. And at the same time, you've got very, very fast phones, sometimes on really good networks, and they're doing very latency sensitive gaming, perhaps. And you've also got phones that may be 10 years old and May well still be able to. I, I honestly can't tell you which which exact mobile platforms gRPC is available for. But you know, in theory, you could use it from very old devices, and certainly more likely is you use use it with relatively budget devices, but on fairly poor networks. And I wouldn't have expected anything come up with, that that someone had come up with. 30 years ago to really have all that in mind because computing has changed so immensely. And it's really interesting right. to see the way it's it's changed in those two particular areas. You know, desktops and have so, come along, but really it's cloud and mobile all the way.
0: So, so talking even more generally about what RPC is... There are probably some listeners who you know they they hear these terms HTTP2, TCP, RPC. Yeah, sure. Where where do these different things fit together? I mean, if I'm a web developer, maybe I've never worked with RPC. I have no idea how it fits into my stack and and when I would need it. What is RPC and how does that how does that compare to the other types of uh, connections and and data passing from, from a client to a server that we would deal with.
1: So RPC uh, itself is is not one thing. It's It just stands for Remote Procedure Call. Um, I remember doing Java-based remoting RPCs uh, back when I first learned Java. I remember doing similar things uh, with .NET, both of which had awful binary serialization protocols that basically meant you could only work from Java to Java and .NET to .NET without horribly complicated things. Um, it really is as simple as it sounds, remote procedure call. So think your normal method call or function call, that's normally on the same computer. Imagine if it weren't, and that's a remote procedure call. Um, Mm. The difficulty comes with thinking, right, so that means all my method parameters, they've got to go over the network. So what does that mean? If I've got an object in memory, so... Bear in mind, I'm used to C-sharp and Java, so I'm used to passing around references to existing objects in memory, and I don't need to really transport very much. Uh, if I'm passing a struct in C-sharp, you know, yes, the bits just get copied, but it's fine with things like referential integrity. If I, if I have two method parameters, which both refer to the same object, that's fine. I can detect that in C-sharp dead easily, the, the one reference will be passed twice and I'll be able to access that same object. As soon as you start thinking, ah, now I'm serializing some data to make the request. So I'm serializing the method arguments, the the remote call arguments, the request effectively. Well, now if I've got two objects that look the same, is there some way of saying they're actually one object and make that kind of distinction? And likewise, when I get a response, you know, you can't, easily uh, in most RPC mechanisms, if you make two RPCs and they notionally refer to the same object, well, how are you going to represent that? So the fact that you're working across this boundary is what complicates everything. But in terms of, if you're used to doing web things, you may find that listeners write in and complain if I say that making a web request (laughs) is like making an RPC. but there are, there are certainly philosophical differences, but fundamentally you're saying to the server, here is some information, give me some information back. You know, ultimately, it's a request response protocol. And it so happens that with HTTP, we have a certain fixed set of kinds of information that you can pass. Um, so plenty in headers and then. Whatever you want to put in the body, you know that's your business, and you need to kind of agree with the server beforehand. Oh, yeah, this is going to accept an um, an HTML form, or uh, some JSON, or some XML, or maybe you specify the content type and and hope that it can accept any of those three things. But fundamentally, if you get down to you spit some bytes at a server, and it spits does some work, and then spits some bytes back at you. That's really what any kind of networking um, application is going to do. And RPC is one sort of flavor, one philosophy behind it, which is give me a request. I will go and deal with it and give you a response back. And the waters get muddied somewhat when you think, um, okay, I want my request to say, get me a particular object. But I got that object five minutes ago, so... You know, If the server knows that it hasn't changed, can I tell the server somehow, I fetched this five minutes ago, just tell me whether or not it's changed. You know, if it's changed, give me the whole object back. Otherwise, tell me that it hasn't changed. So that's where we get into e-tags and you know, all the caching mechanisms that have grown up around the web.
0: Got it. So, I mean, let's talk through some of the examples of the 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 cloud APIs that you've written. I mean, I think your your explanation of GP, gRPC was was really good, and and um, I think I think what makes sense about RPC in this context, it remote procedure call you're writing these client libraries so the user gets the experience, you know, oh, I'm in the IDE and I'm writing, you know, I'm I'm accessing a method uh, from the that's on Google Cloud. And I want it to feel like it's just seamless with the rest of my code, even though it is just this call that's actually going out to a server somewhere. It is a remote procedure call. So it really makes sense for gRPC in this context. Um so talking about these different client APIs, you talked a bit about PubSub earlier. There's also, you know, Google Cloud Storage you've worked on, you worked on the Cloud Datastore service which is like a noSQL database. You've worked on the logging, BigQuery. Which one of these should we discuss? Which one of is is markedly different than than PubSub and would be worth a discussion around how you architected the cloud client.
1: So PubSub and logging are interesting, in that they're not interesting. Um, Don't get me wrong, they're interesting products, but for the APIs themselves, um, those contain no handwritten code. So my involvement sort of ended at CodeGen. Um, In fact, for logging, we do have uh, not a wrapper over the top that you would normally use from client code, but we have a log 4 net implementation. So that's a plugin for other infrastructure. And that's something that, I can see happening in some, but not all APIs, that they may be an API that you never use explicitly. You just configure something else to use it. Um, So if you want to use Cloud SQL, for example, I'm unlikely to write a single line of code to support Cloud SQL, because it's just MySQL. So you use your MySQL driver. So PubSub and and logging are a little bit like that in terms of they haven't required anything more The PubSub API you would use directly, but it's okay as it's been generated by this layer above. When when we were going through CodeGen earlier on, we have this semantic layer just above the gRPC layer that understands what
0: list semantics are and get and um, right so so let's let's talk about that in a little more detail actually cuz so so you get this protobuf spec or this gRPC spec from the creators of the pub sub service the cloud service and this this gRPC spec or protobuf spec essentially gives you what you need you know what you need to implement on the client side and So, as I understand, you design some way of generating code from that spec. Is that accurate? That's right. Uh, And for the bottom
1: two layers, that's all there is. For the layer above, uh, this sort of more semantic layer, um, we do allow a bit more manual tweaking. So we have, uh, for this code gen that we've called GAPIC, um, Google API code gen, I think, um, that I should say is not uh, is primarily uh, not my work so much as that of my colleague, Chris Bacon. I don't want to start taking credit for, for his great work. Um, I've been sort of designing some of the feel of what it should feel like to use it. And then uh, he's done all the hard work of actually generating the code. Um, so we have this extra configuration uh, for GAPIC that is partly driven. We We have a configuration generator, if you like, And yeah, I can just imagine people going, oh, how many generators are involved here? Um, But the the good (laughs) news is you don't need to use any of them. If you're just a client, you don't need to use any of them. Uh, We don't want to make our customers' lives any harder than they need to be. Um, But we look at the proto and we try to infer some information. Like, you know, we see a list topics RPC and we see that the request has something called page size and page token, and the response has something called uh, next page token, and a list of responses, um, a, a list of topics. So we sort of infer, ah, oh, that sounds like, it, it smells like a list operation. And so that ends up in the config. Now, in some cases, um, if things haven't quite gone to normal conventions, um, or if there are other bits, just another bit of configuration that's inferred is what we call parameter flattening. So you've got a request object, and in our generated code, we almost never take just straight request objects because they're a pain to build up. Um, They make sense in terms of the RPC. Basically, our RPCs, (coughs) excuse me, Um, typically have one request gives you one response. One great feature of gRPC I didn't mention before was streaming of either requests or responses or both, and it gets complicated but powerful. But let's stick to the simple situation where you have a request object and you get back a response object. Well, that that really sucks as an experience um, if you had to say, you know, get topic and then take a get topic request. That's no fun because all your client code needs to build a get, get topic request. And they're always gonna fill in the same parameters and we just decide to flatten that out. So we we remove the request part and say, well, you can specify um, the topic name for, for get topic. It's as simple as get topic name, but for other things, maybe you're updating the topic config or whatever. So we take the fields from the request and make the method parameters and need to do that in a slightly careful way in some cases. So, there can be multiple different parameter flattenings available for different use cases. And that kind of thing, again, we try to infer from the proto configuration, but then after that inference, we can then tweak things a bit um, and tweak timeouts. You know, Different RPCs may naturally uh, have different client-side specified timeouts. And so all of that can be tweaked and then we run it through the pipeline and it spits out code in umpteen languages.
0: So so this, this code generation process will work equally well for a Java client or a JavaScript client.
1: Well, you know, I'm a C-sharp person. I, I'm not sure about equally well, simply because for C-sharp, you're working with an, a far superior language to start with, obviously. But, <laughs> you know, um, but importantly and seriously, um, the aim of the code gen is that you end up with idiomatic code for... The target language. What we've seen in some cases before is code generators that are very consistent. They produce the same basic flavor of code for all target platforms, which means that typically for all but one, they feel like you're writing you know, C-sharp with a Java accent or C++ with a Java accent or whatever accent it happens to be. Um, we're trying very hard to give you a consistent experience across APIs. So if you use uh, the PubSub API and the Datastore API, well, for Datastore, I've given an extra surface over the top, but a lot of it should feel very, very familiar. Um, If you use Java, you will get a lot of the same concepts, but they will be exposed in an idiomatic way that is just right for the the language and the platform. That's the theory, you know. Only time will tell how well we're executing on that, but that's definitely the plan, and it's what we're all passionate about.
0: Got it. So occasionally, I'm hearing a, a little noise from, it's, it's not really that bad, but like brushing against your mic, or the mic r- moving around or something. Is there, are there chair moving, uh,
1: Possibly chair moving. Yeah, I tend to be okay. demonstrative right. while I'm talking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, unfortunately, that's not captured in the yeah. podcast, but... Okay, so you mentioned that logging and perhaps PubSub are less interesting than the other uh, services that you've implemented clients for. Why don't you talk some about those other services?
1: Sure. So uh, the other services are where I spend time writing handwritten code. And there are two ways I do that. So sometimes um, I add a new layer over the top, and sometimes I add one to the side, which sounds a little odd. but it's probably best to give you an example. So an example of where we do things over the top is datastore. So almost every data store RPC takes a project name as its first parameter. And that's incredibly tedious to do if you're a client. So instead, even though our generated data store client does that, I've created a datastore DB class over the top where you can say this is the project that i'm working with and actually this is the namespace so data store is organized into namespaces this is the namespace i'm working with and then i can expose simpler uh, methods over the top of that and also extra concepts so data store has the concept of a transaction you know there's begin transaction and then you can commit or roll back and kind of naturally that ends up as a disposable resource within a c-sharp world you know you you create a transaction, you use it in a using block, and if you don't commit it within that using block, then it gets disposed, and that means rollback. Fine. So the idea of a transaction as an object, there, there's no real RPC version of something that's disposable. That's just not the way RPCs work. So we needed to build that into an abstraction layer over the top. So DB has begin transaction that gives you back a, I can't remember for sure, data, datastore transaction, I think which implements IDisposable. And that has a bunch of methods on that implicitly use that transaction. So if you look something up in a data store transaction, it will make the call to the underlying client library, the underlying data store client that's code generated um, and say, hey, I'm transaction XYZ, please do the lookup in this context. And also here's the project and here's the namespace. So we can end up with much more concise method parameters and also parameters that make sense we can end up with methods with far fewer parameters, and imply uh, apply the implicit context of either I'm within a transaction or I'm not within a transaction. I'm just calling look up a key on data the DB. Excuse me, datastore DB. So the fact that that knows it's not in a transaction means it can apply a read mode of non transactional or whatever, and not bother taking a transaction ID. Because if you were using a transaction ID, you'd be using datastore transaction. So that's a sort of layer over the top um and you can always we've decided to be if i say transparent about our abstraction layers, so you can always fall down from one to the next seamlessly well pretty seamlessly. You can easily get from a data store db to the data store client underneath it that's still the code gen version um the the semantic code gen, and then if you really really want to get the finest control ever, you can get the gRPC client under that still code gen. So you're still not spitting out individual bytes, but you can get the, the very raw uh, gRPC side of things, which could be useful if you wanted to do diagnostics and get hold of some of the headers and trailers and, and detailed response and request um, diagnostics. But normally you can stick at hopefully the, the highest level of abstraction, very occasionally dive one layer deeper and once in a blue moon, and it, I would really hope that this was really rare, you'd go down to the gRPC client. Okay. So, so that's the abstraction on top, but there are also abstractions on the side, um, which are, if, suppose you don't want to work with DB, or even when you're working with DB, you still deal with the protocol buffer messages quite often. So anytime that you pass an entity or receive an entity, that's still a protobuf message. Well, within that layer, I can still make things easier for you. The entities have their own protobuf messages for particular value kinds. So I can add C-sharp explicit and implicit conversions from, uh, say, from string to the protobuf value message that's part of an entity. And you can easily build up an entity in a way, pretty much as a dictionary, in a way that would be much more long-winded to do if you had to use just the generated code so this is when I say on the side it's augmenting the existing types within an earlier code gen layer rather than adding a whole layer on the top and that flexibility because I've got all the code within the same project so I've got the protobuf messages I've got the grpc clients I've got our code gen our semantic code gen and if there's a layer on the top that's on top. All of that's within one assembly. It's all within my source code. It uses partial classes all over the place. So I can add things in wherever I need to, just to really fine tune the experience to make it as as really crisp as possible for our clients.
0: So I want to zoom out a little bit because we're talking here about development of client libraries on C Sharp. We have not done a ton of shows about C Sharp. Most of the shows are about people developing on uh, Unix or Linux based systems. Oh well, that's uh, not exclusive now. Don't forget That know, is anything. not that is not you can use mono to for C sharp.net, well, right? You that's what could, you're referring to? No,
1: that's not so a year ago or two years ago, that might have been what I'm referring to. Now it's all.NET Core. So you can use an absolutely first class, you know, mono I have huge admiration for the mono guys. Um but you can use the exact same JIT you would use on Windows, uh, you can use on Linux and Mac as well. So Microsoft has massively gone into open source. So the C-Sharp compiler is open source. Oh, of course, open this, is the
0: open, Absolutely. this is the C-Sharp .NET open source movement. Yeah. Of course, how could I forget which about is, this? Which
1: is massive. And I find it, it's massive for me as well. Um, so not only does it mean that our stuff will work on .NET Core, um, it means that I'll be able to write ASP.NET Core apps that run on linux and then can be hosted potentially on google cloud platform as well so i'll be able to run everything i want in dotnet on google and
0: that makes me very very happy so so what is preferable to to uh, in c sharp to java cuz most of my development has been java uh, and uh, uh, my understanding is you have a lot of experience in java and c sharp how do the two languages contrast
1: so this is difficult because it's 20 past nine now and i need to start working again in about 10 hours time <laughs> um, and i'm not sure that gives me quite enough time to express my preference for c sharp over java um, i can do it simply as c is java done right but there are so many things for one thing c has been evolving much much faster than java so I'm really glad that Java eight has been out for a while now. Java nine is on the horizon, but since or oh, about, I'd say since about 2004, 2005, C# has kind of had the upper hand. So it started much later. So .NET 1.1 was 2002, I think. You know, betas a bit before that from 2000 onwards, I think. So they didn't have the baggage. They were able to learn a lot from Java. Um, and they just embraced elegance all over the place, but with a healthy dose of pragmatism as well. So I know the C-Sharp design team fairly well, um, and I'm the convener for the ECMA standardization committee for C-Sharp, and I'm just in constant awe of those guys. Um, They managed to come up with brilliant, brilliant ideas, like async in C-sharp 5. You know, that was the main feature of C-sharp 5. And I remember um, at a conference a long time ago, I did a talk of, you know, if I ruled the world, C-sharp 5, according to John, and it had some perfectly good ideas that are actually now some of them in C-sharp 7. And I'm not in any way saying that they took them from me. As, you know, they're quite capable of coming up with those ideas themselves. um, But I'm so glad that they didn't take my ideas then. Because async is so, so much better. And now we see so much of the rest of the world going in the same direction. And of course, the C-sharp team itself uh, is wise enough to borrow from other leaders. So a lot of the ideas of of modern versions of C-sharp have come from F-sharp. But they haven't been just copied directly. Instead, they've taken the guts of it, taken what's important in those ideas, and... Really fine tune them to make them feel right for C sharp. There's, Mm. there have been some really big things in C sharp. So link queries, for example, which at first glance is like, that doesn't look like C sharp at all. You know, from X in person where X dot name is starts with John, um, select X dot age or whatever. That doesn't look like C sharp at all but it's incredibly pragmatic. And then when you look at what it can do and how it's implemented, so all of query expressions are implemented by this transform into what I call regular C-sharp, you know, C-sharp without query expressions. And it's so beautiful. It takes up one section of the specification. And when you can come up with such a powerful feature is still so isolated from the rest of the language. It's just amazing. So I'm certainly not saying that C-sharp is a perfect language, but by the time you've got uh, proper generics, lambda expressions with both delegates and expression trees, link, um, even the dynamic typing, I'm not a big dynamic typing fan to say the least. I'm on the uh, on the verge when it comes to, on the fence rather, when it comes to C-sharp and dynamic. Um, is C-sharp a better Lang- language for having dynamic maybe maybe not but if it's going to have dynamic it was really really well done there was a lot of thought put into it async now loads of thought so, everywhere it just feels right all the time
0: now so uh i think for for some period of time java was the de facto back end language for places like google like facebook these big companies and i feel like a lot of that was due to the fact that it could run on Linux where perhaps C# Sharp couldn't, and today you know C# Sharp is catching up. So, do you think we're going to see a, a, a bigger shift towards C# Sharp as the you know as as a predominant server side language?
1: I would like to think so. Yes, um, partly because now it doesn't matter so much. So, in a world of microservices where everyone is exposing whether it's RESTful APIs or gRPC, you know. I've talked about writing a gRPC client. Of course, you can stand up a server written in C-sharp and expose that as your cloud service um, and get Java clients and JavaScript clients and whatever. Because we've got gRPC as the protocol in between, isolating you from those language differences, I could write it in C-sharp today, maybe prototype it in C-sharp. And if I find that it's some insanely resource-intensive service that needs to be rewritten in Go or C++, then someone could do that. And clients, if it's well executed, clients need never know the difference. It's wonderful. So I really, really hope that uh, C Sharp takes, and it's It's not like it's an underdog here in that uh, certainly in enterprises, particularly Windows shops, obviously, C Sharp's always been a very popular server-side language. ASP.NET is massive, but I think that there's a chance that we're on the cusp of something really, really big. When you put together microservices, um, probably Docker or containers in general and container orchestration with products like Kubernetes, um, put those together with the language of your choice. You know, if, if what you're doing is you're exposing a port in a container and as far as anything else is concerned, it's just a black box, then I can put JavaScript there with Node.js, I could put Java there, I could put C++ there, I could put C sharp there. We've got true flexibility. So hopefully developers will use whichever language is going to be the most productive for them for the task they're trying to achieve. Sometimes that will mean, okay, I'm a PHP developer, and I want to get a prototype done, and maybe Go would be the best language for it, but I don't have time to learn Go right now. So I'm going to stand something up, get a prototype done, get funding, and then maybe I'll learn Go.
0: So so Google has the idea of the... I remember a long time ago, at least there was the blessed languages where you like you could use Java or... I think it was Java, Go, or I can't remember what C++. the restricted languages. C++. Okay, has that changed?
1: That still sounds right to me. Um, I think that... There have always, because Google's a big, or Alphabet is a big company with lots of companies and uh, takeovers involved and things, um, there have always been occasional exceptions where, you know, if we bought a company that's running some C sharp and we need to keep their code running, there are ways of doing things. Um, But I'm I'm trying to avoid saying anything that could be seen as even slightly confidential. But I would say that... uh, (laughs) The predominant languages I see for service development are C, Go, and Java. And I would personally not expect that to change any time, just because I'm always astonished at how far Google goes in making its developers productive. So we have big or a lot of teams um, responsible for developer infrastructure and making our developers as productive as possible and that's great as a corollary because we get to learn some of that so that we can hopefully help to make other people as productive as possible um, but it does mean that if you've made a massive infrastructure investment in a lot of java tooling to do um you know, large code base refactoring for example mm-hmm. it's that would be a, an awfully big ask to say, do you know what? I fancy writing in C-sharp today (laughs) because, look, it's open source. It runs on Linux. Therefore, we should be able to do it. Well, no, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And it also means um, if you have a few blessed languages, then chances are you're going to be able to find a code reviewer. You're going to be able to find a team which knows the language well. Um, there There are advantages in having a small set of languages, as well as, of course, frustrations you know. I'm, I feel so blessed myself now to be able to write in C-sharp as my day job and better yet to do it in open source. Um, before that, I had been writing in Java all the time thinking, oh, I'd love to be writing in C-sharp, but there's no way I'm going to move away from Google, which is such a fabulous company to work for. I would rather write in Java in Google than write in C-sharp anywhere else. And now, of course, I get to have my cake and eat it.
0: John, that's a great place to stop. Thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I have really enjoyed talking to you about how you're architecting cloud clients at Google. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com/se daily. That's s y m p h o n o dot com slash se daily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.